Well, I turn you to uh, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We obviously come to, I think you would agree, one of the best known Bible stories. It's a real account, but one of the best known Bible stories really in all of the Bible. And it's found in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel in and out of the, the lion's den. And certainly this is not just for children. This is for all of us. And we know that as well. And it's a wonderful account. I, I wish in some ways I could speak this in one setting, um, which would give you the whole of the narrative. But I think it might be best because, you know, we don't want to miss anything if we can take chapter 6 just this week and next week. So each of these weeks are so vital for us in the life of our church. We just had a wonderful biblical counseling conference here on Friday and Saturday. I'm so thankful for Andy and Brendan and all the work they did to make that work. And uh, our ministries just move forward. I heard there were 15 people in the baptism class. And so there's so much uh, before us. But here is a wonderful account. It might say, Daniel, a man of integrity, on the notes, I, I changed it late in the week um, to Daniel, a lesson on trusting God. I mean, it's not really about Daniel, and you know that every time we preach, there is a theocentric um, thought in the text. It's, it's centered on God, and there certainly is a Christocentric element in all of the Word of God where Christ becomes the focus. And so it's not really about Daniel, it's really about his sovereignty and providence. Someone has said there are three types of churches, or maybe I could add three types of believers, or maybe I could even add three types of institutions. Here they are. The courageous, the cowardly, and then finally, the complicit. And I would have to say that that third category of the complicit is growing fast. Now, what we're going to see in the midst of this text is Daniel was a courageous man, as you know, who trusted God. Now, as we set our eyes, don't forget that Daniel was written to the Jewish exiles in captivity, okay? And they were tempted along many fronts. He put them there because of their sin, but they were tempted in exile, in Babylonian captivity, to ignore God's law and to not trust God and not to trust his word for their deliverance. Ralph Davis, a wonderful commentator, said that the most tempting idol was not Darius quasi-divinity. We'll see that. Everybody was to worship him. He said that's not the, the most tempting idol for Darius is that he was, wanted to be like God. It may likely, Ralph Davis said, have been Daniel's own security. 
his own security to preserve himself in the midst of the decree that would go out that anyone who failed to bow down to Darius would be fed to the lion's den. In fact, if you really look ahead in Daniel 6, 23, you'll catch a key statement there. After he comes out of the lion's den, then the king was Darius, exceedingly glad in 23, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, comma, here's the key, because he had trusted in his God. There in one way or another, as we look at the overall purpose, is that he had trusted in his God. And so I'm asking you this morning, do you trust God? Do you trust the promises of his word in this evil age and trust God to make all things new at his second coming? For though it's about Daniel, it's really about us. It's about you right now for your family for your children, in whatever the circumstances are, to trust God and trust his promises. So let me just say without a shadow of a doubt that Daniel 6 is for us. It's for you. It's for you as a group of men who lead your families. It's for you to trust in these promises. Now we find ourselves in this sixth chapter. We've already looked at his demonstration, sovereign demonstration in chapter one, his dominion gods over the nations in chapter two, his deliverance of those three friends from the fiery furnace. We've looked at the demise of Belshazzar. We finished with that last week with his death and the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire, and in came, according to chapter 5 and verse 30 and 31, the Medes and the Persians. And so we'll title this chapter, The Sovereign Deliverance from the Lions. He would be delivered, and I think you know that. So I don't want to lose the tension in the narrative, but he will be delivered. Now I remind you as we come into this chapter, it is soon after the fall of Babylon. Babylon was conquered and I went into that last week. We have not moved territories over to the Medo-Persian Empire. They conquered Babylon. Babylon stayed intact with the new government coming in. Okay, so he's in Babylon. Well, let me organize Daniel chapter 6, okay, through seven snapshots, okay, that reveal God's deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den. Like, I don't think I need an outline because it's a narrative, but very well, you're following, you're tracking, the story was written, the account given. Let's pretend you're a photographer. There's gonna be seven snapshots that are pushing towards the deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den, and it's given for this purpose, like every text has a purpose. It provides encouragement to you 
to trust God in the midst of crisis. That's the focal point of the sermon. It's provided in the word of God, looking back, seven snapshots, but the end game is to leave you with a purpose that in the midst of the trial that you might be in right now, (laughs) that you would have encouragement to trust God as promises in the midst of crisis. So I've chosen not to read the text to you, but to read it as a narrative as we go, okay? So let's look at the first snapshot. We'll just call it the distinguished prophet. The distinguished prophet. And it's found in verses one and two. Look at it. It pleased Darius. He took over. We mentioned that pretty extensively last week, probably, likely, another name for King Cyrus, but it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps uh, to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials to whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account for this purpose, so that the king might suffer no loss. So Darius comes in, they conquer Babylon in one night, and as Darius the Mede um, takes over, he organizes his new government quickly, okay? I mean, we're moving from Nebuchadnezzar to the Medo-Persian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. He was just full of himself in chapter 3. He built the, the idol out in the desert in the plains of Shinar to worship him. But this Medo-Persian government is a little different. Darius comes in and he appoints 170 satraps. The head of gold, as we note, is over. The chest and the arms of silver, according to chapter 2, the Medes and the Persians, has taken its place. They are still in Babylon, as I mentioned. And I just say this, just for your curiosity and interest, I don't think I need to say this, but I was looking at artwork uh, You say, why would you look at artwork? You know, people have painted this event in portraits all over the globe. And I was looking at one by Paul Rubin, and he had the famous painter, all these lions around Daniel. But the problem was, I'm like, you got it wrong. Uh, Daniel looked like King David in his 20s. He had curly hair. Obviously, he, they show him as a young man, and we know that that's not the case. I've told you on a couple of fronts, Daniel is at least 85 years of age. He's no longer the teenager in chapter 1, which he was at 15. We're talking nearly 70 years down the road where it was prophesied they would go into exile. Daniel is 85, and I just want you to know that Daniel's greatest test comes not at the beginning of his life, it comes at the end of his life. So whatever you lock in, or I lock in into my mind about cruising into the future, not this guy, 
Daniel's going to put him into the greatest test he's ever experienced. But what is amazing, some of the most remarkable people have been old when they've been used of God. Michelangelo did his famous painting at Vatican City of the Sistine Chapel, and I think he finished it at 67, but he might have been touching it up all the way close to 90. I mean, that was the last judgment. We were just there a couple of weeks ago at Vatican City, and I, we were in that arena. And so, uh, the, a case of what he did, Wesley John was preaching many sermons almost daily until he was 88 Thomas Edison was still inventing in his 90s. I just say that because our culture says 55 or 65. And these guys are going. Daniel is the finest statement, statesman maybe the world's ever known. And he's at least 85. So you get the scene. They come underneath the, the, the gates, if you will, into Babylon. Take the kingdom, do the Medes and Persians. And Darius, as you heard, appoints 120 satraps. The word satraps, it's interesting because this is in Aramaic in the Bible. It means there, a satrap, a protector of the kingdom. You can see it. 120 protectors of the kingdom. In setting those satraps, obviously, he gives three high officials. Another word is for that is presidents. So he's got 120 over his kingdom. He appoints three high officials or presidents of whom we read Daniel was one. So these satraps were accountable to these three high officials that the text says, you can see it in verse two, that the king might not suffer loss. You might say loss, yes, that people would not steal from the kingdom. So whatever we struggle today politically, it evidently was there at the beginning. He appointed the three to keep the 120 accountable. Loss of what kind? I think either of territory or of taxation. He put these leaders, I thought it was kind of funny, I added it, to protect the walls, okay, and to protect the wallets. It's kind of like today, right? That's why he put these three in charge. You say, but look what happened in the text in verse three. Then, he always is doing this then, this Daniel became extinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him and the king, Darius, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What a statement. The, the ideal of the language there, he was continually distinguishing himself. I mentioned that he was the finest administrator. Just look back one chapter. Do you remember in chapter 5 when the queen's mother came in and um, in chapter... Five, it says this in verse 11. There is a man, remember that in 511, in your kingdom, she tells Belshazzar, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
and the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles. So there was in Daniel the idea that he distinguished himself. It says in the text that there was an excellent spirit in him. Uh, what, what is that? Was it attitude? Was it abilities? And I would say, yes. Daniel had experience. He had spiritual wisdom. Men, he was full of integrity. But really, all the credit goes to God. God gave him those gifts. But here he is, he's distinguished himself. You say, well, Scott, a new kingdom came in. Well, maybe Darius was smart. He put his ear to the ground and he knew that this Daniel was distinguished in Babylon, all the things that were said about him and he pulls them to himself and maybe rather quickly out of 120 satraps, Daniel begins to you know, distinguish himself and he, the king was planning, it says, to put him over the whole kingdom. He was about ready to be appointed to the top position in the kingdom, second only to Darius. However, the distinguished prophet runs into, secondly, the deadly plot. Here's the next, this is what happens. I mean, doesn't it always work this way? You're up for some promotion, and then there's some green-spirited envy and jealousy. So look, because it says there in verse 4, after he's going to set him over the whole kingdom, then, verse 4, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground of, uh, for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find no ground of complaint, it says, or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. And so here it begins to hatch, as you'll see, a deadly plot. It's very clear in verse 4, then... Some people said, well, we don't know why these other two presidents came after Daniel. I think it's rather obvious. He's going to be appointed second only to Darius, and it's very clear then. So jealousy sets in. They're envious of Daniel. I mean, with Daniel around, maybe they're thinking this, there's no foul play taking place. Daniel, if you will, doesn't say it directly, must have cramped their style. If, if I could think through it and see through it, I think he's cramping their financial profits. Daniel, in my mind, is a threat to them. He's the threat of the whistleblower. In fact, the promotion of Daniel means the demotion of either these other two presidents and all the other people. So, so envious are these people that they sought to find. And in the Aramaic, it's present tense. They're seeking. 
They're looking, they're hunting for what? A ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They're seeking, and they'll put it in the modern vernacular, to find dirt on Daniel, okay? There's gotta be something on this guy. There's gotta be some kind of hidden dirt. And so maybe they're checking, I'm saying it this way, expense reports, they're checking emails, they're giving out a security check on this guy, they're beginning to hunt down government files. But look again, it says there in four, they could find no ground of complaint against Daniel. Amazing. They found nothing. Zilch. Nada. I'd like to hear them interpret that. Okay. Nada. There's no error in this guy. There's no flaw. Listen, GCV. Listen, men. Listen, teen challenge. That by itself is just incredible. There's no charge against him. There's no negative performance in his file. There's no dishonesty that clings to him. There's no money laundering scheme that he's guilty of. There's no skeleton in his closet. He is, in New Testament words, as that of an elder, he is above reproach. In fact, he's so, here's the line, he doesn't live below it, he lives above it, okay? Which means that there's no ground of even an accusation against him. Stunning. 85 years old. Doesn't mean that he's sinless. Doesn't mean that he's flawless. But it does mean that he has sustained a reputation of righteousness. He's not cheating on exams. He's not telling his parents one thing and then doing something. But he's an older man here, you see. They can't find anything. I think when I was uh, a young man in pastoral ministry, and we would talk about the quality of an elder, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, it clearly sets the overarching banner as above reproach. And in the early days, I, I would call Daniel, I think you get it, you can't say it anymore, I'd call him a Teflon man. A Teflon man. In other, remember when we were, years ago, some of you younger people won't know what this is, they had, or do they still have Teflon pans now? Do they? My wife is, they do. Okay, but I think now they've got all these wonderful plates that food doesn't stick. But in the early days, you had to take this stuff and spray it into the pan so none of the food would, what? Stick. So this is Daniel in my mind. He's a Teflon man. They're looking, they're searching, but they can find no ground of accusation. This man, Daniel, up into his mid-80s, has sustained a reputation of blamelessness. You say, why? Look at the text again in verse four. At the end of four, it says, because he was, what? Faithful. That this guy, Daniel, was trustworthy. In other words, there is nothing in his personal life, 
There is nothing in his professional life. There's no impurity in this guy. He is a man of integrity. I mean, he's not like the guy at a fast food restaurant as he was going through the takeout. He received, he was hoping to receive a box of chicken. But as he drove away, he received a, a box of money. Don't know the whole story. He opens up, he's waiting to see the chicken. He opens up this box and it's full of cash. And so somebody made a mistake and he brings the box back. And of course the store and the owner, the general manager is just shocked. And they said, listen, we're gonna call the newspaper. We're gonna take a picture of you. This is incredible. And the man who was in the car said, oh no, don't do that. And they said, well, why? Well, he said, the woman in the car is not my wife. Uh, You say, what goes into the duplicity of a man to bring the money back in good faith? But don't make this known because that woman next to me (laughs) is not my wife. Daniel, no. He's blameless. So what they did is they started to dig up his religion. He's impeccable, so we can make up a word. So he's hateable. That's the point. He's impeccable, and so whatever it is, he's now hateable. You say, well, what happened? Look down at the text in verse 5. Then these men, then again, right? We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. Now, when you, you can stop there. You, well, they kind of talked and they came. No, the, the word there is they came kind of in a throng together. They came in verse 6 to the king and said to him, I, I feel like Charlie Brown, like blah, 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 blah. Oh, King Darius, live forever. Look at verse 7. All the high officials. Really? Daniel's not there. He's the top, maybe, but all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce, any, uh, enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in to the lion's den. And so they're on this deadly plot before the king. They supposedly come by agreement. They all supposedly consulted together. They all agreed, and it is a gross exaggeration, as I mentioned, because Daniel wasn't there. They're lying. They're spinning right now what they want Darius to hear. What do they do? They feed his ego so that Daniel might be fed to the lions. I mean, here's what they basically said to Darius, which is kind of funny for me, but you could be God 
for 30 days. I'm kind of like, well, why not just make him God? I mean, but okay, for 30 days, Darius, we want you to be God for a month. And I frankly think, at least at this point, Darius is swept off his feet by the flattery. I think he's a king. He's the Medo-Persian king. And I think he is intoxicated by the thought that for the next 30 days, they're going to make him God. Look at verse 8. It says there, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it says there clearly, which cannot be revoked. So if they can get Darius to his signature, it guarantees that the law, as we read, of the Medo-Persian Empire can't be revoked. Even the king can't revoke it. You could see a little bit of the difference between the strength of Nebuchadnezzar, who would have done whatever he wanted, and if you get his signature now from the king, then it can't be revoked. The Medo-Persian culture believed in some writings, that the monarchs were infallible. And if the king tried to change what was written, it would be an admission of his infallibility, or excuse me, his fallibility that would make it unthinkable. You say, well, what did he do? Well, look at the text in verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the documents and the injunction. And maybe he's a brand new king in Babylon. Maybe he's thinking, if I sign this, it will unify us. I'm pushing it. Maybe he's thinking, hey, we just took over Babylon. Now the Medes and the Persians, whom I, maybe he's thinking, what a great way politically to unify my kingdom in this takeover. And so what would Daniel what do? Okay? What would he do? Well, I'll take you third snapshot, okay? To the the dedication of his prayer. Here's what Daniel did. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You just gotta love this guy, right? He's not trying to be politically correct at all. In fact, there's a little, there's moxie of this guy. And I'm wondering, are there any men who live like this? The decree was passed publicly, but it never altered what he did privately. And clearly, and I'm just recognizing this with you, he disobeyed, he disobeyed 
the law that was handed down. I mean, then you're going to say, some would say today, how do we justify that when Romans 13 instructs us to obey the government? Well, we are commanded in Scripture, we know this, to obey the government, but we are also called to a higher law, the law of God. I mean, this is what's at case. I don't know if you think of Daniel 6. You either obey the law of the Medes and the Persians or you obey the law of your God. And I think we know from Acts 5.29 that Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than what? Men. In fact, (laughs) I'm smiling here. Have you ever read the account of Corey Ten Boone? I mean, it's in a wonderful account, and I'm laughing because my wife has probably read it like 10 times, which means I've read it five times, <laughs> which, whether it's in book form or in audible form, she broke, you remember, the law of Germany when she hid the Jews from the Nazi regime during World War II. But, beloved, you know that she would have broken a higher law had she not tried to prevent the murder of innocent people. You say, well, what's the account here? Here it is. He just kept doing what he always did. He prayed. Now, the text says, and you can see it, he's praying towards what? Jerusalem, okay? You say, is this superstitious and my answer is no it was based on Solomon's prayer at the temple dedication this will come up on the screen in first kings chapter 8 verse 27 look at the next slide and you can write it down but will God indeed after they built it dwell on the earth and the answer is behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less even though it was a wonder of the world. This temple that I have built, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven at your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And so there is the text. God's dwelling place, certainly Solomon prayed, was not the temple. In fact, Solomon confessed, did he not, that even heaven, the heavens, aren't able to contain God, much less the temple in Jerusalem. But beloved, Jerusalem was the place where God chose to meet with men, where he chose to meet with men and bless them, okay? And so he prays. He's not praying legalistically. He's not even praying a formula here. But can I just highlight a few things? You say, well, Scott, what do you mean? Well, the point of the text 
is that Daniel trusted God. The point of the text is not to show you exactly what he did as though he was forming a methodology for your prayer, but it would be short in my thinking that to not say just four things about his prayer. Number one, his practice. He's kneeling three times a day. Now, okay, does, does that to be legalistic? I don't think so. Because Paul told us to pray at all times in the spirit for all things. Ephesians, we went through that. But at least his practice was three times a day, which I think, if I'm looking at the Psalms, would be that he prayed in the morning. He prayed, I'm thinking, at noon. And he prayed at night. Likely, he was following Psalm, maybe, 55, 17, where the psalmist said, evening, morning, and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan. And he hears my voice. So they're seeking to find fault with Daniel, but I just want you to know that what held this guy is he's seeking his God. This is his praying practice. Secondly, not only his practice, but his praying. You can see it there in verse 10, that he's praying and he's, he's giving thanks. He just heard the decree. He goes back and he continues to do what he had always done and he, he's praying. And what is he doing? He's giving thanks. Verse 11, he's making a petition and plea, if you will, before God. I, I think it reminds me of Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and, and supplication with what? Thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God who surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, this is a theocentric text, but I am admitting to you, this is past. He's 85 and he is praying. That was his practice that's his practice to pray. Secondly, he's praying and making supplication. Thirdly, just noting, doesn't have to be an alliteration, but hopefully it'll help you memorize it. His posture. Now listen, I can take you to 100 verses that don't say there's one posture. But all I know, this guy, this man, it says here, was kneeling on his, what, knees. Obviously, that's a posture in prayer. In the Aramaic, he's continually kneeling. Now, this is not a legalistic mandate. It is a heart of dependence upon God. When Jesus was in the garden, he what? He knelt and prayed. 
God could have you in a situation right now where it is overwhelming for you. And at times the believer is not only gonna keep praying, keep practicing, if you will, keep giving thanks, but you get driven to your knees. It is a heart dependence on God. And the fourth note that I'm just highlighting is his persistence. Look at the end of verse 10. He prayed and gave thanks before his God at the end as he had done, what? Previously. Like, I I don't know. I suppose you could take that a couple of ways. I just think this was his pattern. And I think, not just previously as a leader, I think it went all the way back to when he was a teenager. There was a, I'm I'm pushing it, a secret is he did not wait for the crisis and then engage in prayer. He was kneeling and praying continually. I think what you wanna see here is he never altered his course. He bent his knee so that he might not buckle before the world. So he's in the most ungodly place in the known world at this time, I think. And he bows his knee, he bends his knee so that he doesn't buckle, so that he doesn't compromise. Jesus said to Peter, the flesh is willing and the spirit is what? Is your, 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 the spirit is strong, but your flesh is weak. Therefore, go back and pray. Listen, I could, I don't, you could do this if you read it. He could have reasoned a lot of stuff here. <laughs> Say like what, Scott? He could have said with the three friends, but here in six, I'm better alive than what? Dead. I mean, he could have just, he he could have said that. He could have said, listen, I'm in tune with Jeremiah's prophecy that at the end of our Babylonian exile, we will be ushered to go back so that the word of God is fulfilled. So he could have said, hey, we're close to 70 years. We're right at 70 years. Do I really want to get into a trial here? He could have said, you know, I'm 85 now. Maybe I'll just pass. He could have taken, and I'm pushing the point, a month off, okay? I'm just, okay, it's only 30 days. I'm gonna go on sabbatical or whatever he was, he's thinking. He could have just closed the windows. He could have just left town. He could have just prayed at night. He could have reasoned, and he didn't, but he could have reasoned, I was thinking about this, hey, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, bowing in public worship would be, you would reason with me, blatant idolatry. But this command, he could have thought, 
is not blatant idolatry. It's just kind of personal practice. Didn't Jesus say, if you pray, don't pray at the street corner. Go to your father who's in, what? Secret. And your father who's in secret will repay you. I mean, he, obviously we're in the Old Testament. But not Daniel. You could move somewhere But your kids, my kids, and your grandchildren need to understand beyond where we live. And Daniel saw this as a direct attack on the law of his God. And beloved, he had to choose between loyalty to the government or loyalty to the Lord. That's what he had to choose before. In chapter 3... Interesting, they are not to worship idols. But in Daniel chapter six, his stance here was privately not to neglect the worship of God. Chapter three was a reminder to not avoid or to avoid idolatry. But in chapter six, it is a reminder to not compromise by failing to worship God. Just think about COVID. (laughs) Looking back while they're telling us not to meet, even though people are wrecking havoc on streets with fires and bombs, and while the bars are open, we can't worship. And I'm so thankful that our elder team opened up. Listen, let me put it this way. Failing to worship God is as much a denial of faith as bowing down to a pagan idol. And when they pull that from Daniel, the the word was so strong in his life. He, He just throws the windows open. You say, well, how does he have windows? Typical, very Palestinian, if you will, that on top of a house, would be a little room and they made him a room and he prayed and it had a lattice and he just went in and did what he always did. Listen, I love this. I pray that I could be this man, that you can be this man. He'd rather be eaten by lions than stop praying to God. And we're talking all about, I'm a little bit off my sermon here, all about our own security and not this guy. He'd rather, I'd rather be consumed than to stop praying. Leon Wood, the commentator said, the existence of a continued testimony was more important than the existence of his life. Wow. His relationship with God uh, was not the best kept secret in the company. How's yours? How's mine? And, And here, let me say this, it's easy to debunk a habit, but someone said that a train's habit is to be continued, uh, is to be confined, if you will, to its tracks and it leads to usefulness. Daniel's faithfulness, if you will, his consistency 
assist his courage and his discipline feeds his faithfulness. In crisis, Daniel's habit set him free to be faithful. And I'm saying this to me, rather than opt out of his faithfulness, Daniel saw this trial as the climax of his faithfulness. Past faithfulness, looking back, was not meant to be a compensation for present unfaithfulness. Listen, this is my prayer for our church. This is my joy in our church. I watch some of our older guys just keep serving. They just keep grinding. They keep praying and they keep assisting. I pray that the next generation and the third generation and the fourth generation doesn't lose that.